it is very appropriate that we are singing about who Jesus is this morning, church, because that is where we are going to be as we start a new study this morning, going through Hebrews. I think I told some of you guys that we're going to build off of Exodus over the next, well, we're going to take a break for Christmas, over the, pretty much through February, we're going to be going through the book of Hebrews. And the reason we're going through Hebrews is because Exodus kind of leaves us with this, this unanswered question, okay? Exodus gives us a really good picture of what it is to be the people of God and the design that God has. But you also see in Exodus kind of the tension of, but we're not quite there yet, right? Like, even though we see what God wants of us, there's still something that has broken. There's still something that keeps us from God. We're in need of reconciliation. And we, we get this in Exodus, but we're kind of left with this question, so how do we get back to this? Like, how do we get to God's design? If we're seeing the design in Exodus, how do we get to live it out today? And the short answer for that is just Jesus. And that would be the shortest sermon I would have given you. We could all go home happy at that point. But the more I had been reading through Hebrews kind of to get ready for this, I realized if we understand who Jesus really is, the more you just get who Jesus is, the more that actually changes who we are. And what's special about Hebrews and the fact that we've been uh, in Exodus for an entire year is Hebrews is one of the New Testament books that quotes the Old Testament almost more than any, any other book. Right, so as we go through Hebrews this morning, um, I, I played around with the idea of having somebody else read Scripture whenever we would get to the Old Testament passages, so, just so you would hear how much Old Testament is in there, but, uh, but I didn't want to spring that on John last second. But we're, we're going to read through Hebrews today. And guys, there's a lot of Old Testament pictures in here. So when you read places like that in the New Testament, you kind of have to go back to the Old Testament and say, what, what were they trying to talk about then? Because that's whatever the New Testament author is trying to point to. And really, this whole book is just you know the equation on the screen. Jesus is greater than blank. And the author of Hebrews just time and time and time again says, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. There's all these things we could do, but Jesus is it. And so if we've been seeing a picture for the whole last year, man, this is what God wants. Jesus is it, church. So we're going to talk a little bit about that each week as we go through Hebrews and say, okay, what is Jesus greater than, and how does that change how I think about living out my faith today? The first one we're going to be talking about today, if you were to fill in that blank, is angels. Uh, angels is not something that I typically preach a whole lot on, so this is going to be fun for me today just as much as it's fun for us. But the main kind of driving idea behind Hebrews 1 is that God is desiring his people to adopt the image of his son, Jesus Christ, not his servants, the angels. So there's something different about being a son, being a daughter, a child of God, and being a servant of God. I think the distinction, you, you guys are going to listen today and be like, oh yeah, yeah, we still wrestle with that today. So we're going to dive into Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 1 says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, so this is all talking about Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but like a robe you will wear them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So this is where we are in in Hebrews 1. Father, we're grateful today for your word, uh, for the encouragement that you give us. Um, Father, that all throughout scripture you are painting this picture of who you are and who you made us to be because of who you are how we've broken from that in sin, how we need to be made right with you. We need to be saved, reconciled, you know, whatever word we, we are, we're used to there. But God, when we are made right with you, you have a plan and you have a purpose. Father, thank you for giving us a whole year together to go through Exodus to kind of see this picture, you know, almost like, when you're taking a pencil and writing it on a page, God, you're just starting to sketch it out for us. But Lord, we are, we are bringing the color in today. We are seeing that this has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so, Lord, as we see what you have done for us in your son, Father, show, this, show us who that makes us so we would know how to live. In your name we pray. Amen. So right away. And for those of you who, uh, who are like this, you'll appreciate that Hebrews gets right to the point. Right? In some of the letters in the New Testament, there's a, hey, hello, good to see you. I'm here. You guys are over there. Let's establish this connection. The author of Hebrews just says long ago at many times, like, he just dives right in. So we're just going to dive right in. It's interesting to me that he dives right in Whoever the author of Hebrews is, I know most people believe it's Paul. I'm just going to say author for today. But the author of Hebrews immediately just like dives in to a deep discussion as to who Jesus is. So almost like a friend that you haven't seen in a while. And as soon as you shake hands, you're like, we both can move past all the small talk and just talk about everything we've missed over the last five years. This is what the author of Hebrews is doing to his audience. And right off the bat, he just says, look, Jesus is the Son of God, and that makes him infinitely better than angels. We'll talk about the angels piece in a minute, but it's, it's interesting, and I don't want us to just move so quickly past who is Christ that the author of Hebrews 1 is trying to point out. 
the context here also is a big deal. So he's writing to a church or a a group of Christians primarily from a Jewish background. They're struggling, they're facing persecution, and they're saying, you know, life was a lot easier for us when we were Jews. Because when we were Jews, the Romans didn't, they just kind of let us alone. Like, they, they didn't really know what to do with us, so they... They kind of were like, hey, if, if you guys just be good Roman citizens, we'll let you do whatever Jewish things you need to do. When we were Jews, we had it easy. Now that we're Christians, everybody hates us, right? The, the Gentiles don't like us. The Romans don't like us. The Jews don't like us. So is it, is it really that much different to be a Christian than to be a Jew is kind of this, this mindset that the early church has. Like, can, can we just go back to the law a little bit because it'll be way easier for us if we do? And right off the bat, the first thing the author of Hebrews says is, no, don't. Jesus is greater. He starts showing how Jesus is greater because of all these Old Testament pictures. He says, look, if you go back You're going to be finding yourself looking for what Jesus has already done. He describes Jesus in verse 1 as the one whom God speaks to. He says, look, God used to speak through the prophets and through the law, pointing to something. But here the, the full picture has arrived. The fullness of God's revelation is right here in Jesus. He calls Jesus in verse 2 the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Colossians 1 and John 1, they both kind of say similar things. All things have been made through Christ for Christ. They're made for his image. Verse 3 calls Christ the radiance of God's glory. And this is one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. The exact imprint of his nature. Right? That when people saw Jesus, they were seeing what it was like to be God. Who God was. The image of of God in man. That's who Jesus was. And because of that, Jesus was able to, verse 3, make purification for sins. So, right, the whole Old Testament law was about how do we get purified from our sins. The author's saying, uh, that's Jesus. Jesus did that. Verse 4, Jesus is the one whose name was superior to the angels. Verse 5, he was the literal son of God. Verse 6, he's the one deserving of all worship and all praise. Same thing in verse 7. 8 and 9 tell us that he's the one who reigns forever because he's loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So because he's lived out God's image, God has set him apart from the rest of the world. Verses 10 through 13, Jesus being fully God, was part of the creation work again. It's just, he just keeps going back to, look, Jesus is it. So if you're thinking about whose image God is wanting you to bear, it's, it's Christ. And I, I may try to, you know, maybe change the color of the words on the slides just so you guys see all the different Old Testament references that the author is making. But today I'll tell you in verse, uh, verse 4, no, I take it back, verse 2, 2 through 5 is a reference to Psalm 2. It doesn't appear as a quote in your scripture. But if you go back and read Psalm 2, you're going, man, the author of Hebrews is almost word for word just writing the same thoughts right there. Verses 8 and 9 here are a direct quote of Psalm 45. Verses 10 through 12 is a direct quote of Psalm 102. Verse 13 is a direct quote of Psalm 110. Just all these psalms together are all psalms about the Messiah. Right? All, of, all of these psalms that the author is referencing are all ones that talked about who the Messiah would be. Who would God's deliverer be? And the author of Hebrews says that 
is Jesus. So if you have your faith in Jesus, the author says you're not going to find anything better. There's not going to be anything greater for life than Christ. So with all of this, this Old Testament pictures, and, and the, I mean, another one of these big pictures, if you look at verse 3, I, I almost skipped over this one, but this was also one of my favorites. The whole language of sit, making purification for sins and then sitting down at the right hand of the majesty, I mean, that is as Jesus as our priest, Jesus as our king. So much of the Old Testament is, hey, we, we need a priest, we need a king. And when the, when the priest or the king is not right with God, then the people are not right with God. And here the author of Hebrews says, look, here is the perfect priest. Here is the perfect king. I mean, how many different ways can I tell you, first century Jewish believers, Jesus is exactly who you are looking for. So right now, guys, as we're reading Hebrews 1, like, yes, I, I get I'm, I'm probably beating the horse to death here. But, I mean, it's, it's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, stay true to the image of Christ because that's, that is what God is calling his people to do. That's what he's asking his people to do. But he gives all of this in a very specific context, right? We are supposed to stay in the image of Christ rather than the image of his ministering angels. And when I read that, I mean, the first question that jumps into my mind is, why angels? All right, now, if, if we go back and look at this, I'm going to read for you guys how the angels are described. And as I'm describing it, I mean, when I was reading this week, church, I was going, I don't really see the issue here. Right, the angels look pretty good, okay? So if you're getting to that point, that's where I was on like Tuesday this week. In verse 4, you see Christ is described as having become much more superior to the angels. And why? Because the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So because Christ has God's image, he has the name of God, he's better. Verse 5, the identity of Christ is again tied to God, and that's what makes him better than the angels, because he's the son of God. Verse 6, because Christ is greater than the angels, God calls all his angels to worship Christ, right? Because we worship things that are, we, in our minds, they're greater. So God tells his angels, hey, you're going to be worshiping Christ, meaning Christ is better. But what's the deal with the angels? There's two verses that really describe the angels. Verse 7 and verse 14. They kind of make a nice Christ sandwich, if you will. There's a bunch of verses about who Jesus is, the, the meat in between these two verses about angels. Verse 7, they're described as winds, ministers, flames of fire... Verse 14, they're called ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So just, if you're trying to wrap your head around what the angels are doing, look at each of those words. Winds is actually a Greek word we talked about last week, pneuma. It just means a spirit. Some contexts, it's the spirit of God, but here it's talking about the spirit of an angel. Uh, the Greek word for ministers is uh, liturgos, which you guys have probably heard the word liturgy in English, very closely related there. Uh, it just means servant. There's the phrase flame of fire, which Luke uses in Acts to describe how an angel appeared to Moses 
in the burning bush in Exodus in a flame of fire. So just all of these are pictures of God kind of showing up to give a message to tell his people something. Right, And the specific context of like what he's trying to tell them comes in verse 14. They serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Serve there is the exact same verb we were looking at last week or two weeks ago with the deacons. Right, So just if you go back to our church leadership, you had the elders met the spiritual needs. The deacons met the physical needs. The angels are meeting all the needs of the saints, essentially. This is kind of the, the picture that verse 7 and verse 14 give us of the angels. But if you look at the meat of the sandwich, you see a different picture for who Christ is and what he does. We see in verse 8 this verse talking about you know, how God's kingdom is forever and God's kingdom is righteous and then verse 9, we're told that Christ is the one anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Christ is the one who has inherited God's throne. It's a pretty big position to have, slightly better than the angels. The author further notes how Christ as God's son is part of the founding of both heaven and earth, verse 10. And the angels as part of this heavenly realm, they're going to pass away, but not Christ. Because Christ had the hand in creating it, 11 and 12. So if you kind of put this sandwich together, the idea that we're seeing is that angels are described as the bodies who serve Christ, right? who meet the needs of Christ and his people. But Christ is greater because he's not the servant of God. He is the son of God. Right? And for you and I today, we would be calling ourselves right, the children, the sons and the daughters of God. That's a good theological connection. Why do we care about this? There's a couple things we get actually from the context. If you think back to the different gospels that you've read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you think about what do you remember about the Pharisees of that day? Because that's going to kind of tell you what, where, where's this Jewish perspective this audience is coming from. We know the Pharisees viewed themselves as very righteous workers, right? The ones that were serving the temple, the ones that were setting the standard for what good works in the name of God looked like. We know they cared a lot, a lot about how their lives looked and about what their service was like. So much so that Jesus just kind of pokes at them. He's like, you, you tie the tenth of your spices, but you neglect your neighbor. He's like, you're so finicky and how, how badly you want your lives to look good serving for God that you're completely missing all the million ways that, that you're not even doing it well. We also know that they had, they had such power go to their heads because of the position they got by doing all these works, that when Christ came and challenged it, they were willing to put him up on the cross. That, that something about how badly they wanted to do good things in God's name actually led them to kill Christ. So can you kind of hear, I mean, other than the killing Christ part, the appeal for these, these formerly Jews Right? Not that they're going to think of themselves as angels, but they're going, hey, what you're describing the angels do, that's like how we used to live. 
Like you're talking about all these people that are like meeting the needs and doing all the, ser- they're the servants of God. Like that's, that's who I was, right? Like I, that would be our natural tendency. When things get hard, go back to what you know. And yet God is talking to the early church saying, look, I get that this is tempting. And I get that when you're facing persecution, you're going to want to go back to this. But he says, look, I have not called you to do that. I have given you something greater. You see, God's people adopt the image of his son, Jesus Christ, not the image of his ministering angels, because there is something greater than being a servant of God. It is to be a child. Paul says it like this in Galatians 4, 3 through 7. He says, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Paul says, look, you've been redeemed from that former manner of life. There is no need for you to go back to this anymore. He says, we've been redeemed under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul says, because you are his sons, not his servants, his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, no longer a servant of God, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. And guys, as we think about applying this, and how that changes us this morning, because we're seeing, okay, that's, that is what the author of Hebrews is pointing to, right? Jesus is greater than the angels, because we're called to be God's children, not God's ministering spirits, God's servants. I was trying to think of, like, how do you explain why that different mindset matters? And I realized that that difference in nature gives you a different role. That if you're living under the mindset of a servant, you act differently. You, you are different than if you're living in the mindset of a son. So the picture that I have of this, I used to work, before I was even a youth pastor, um, I worked for a guy for about a year in his civil engineering office in North Carolina. And uh, if work ever got light in the office, because he knew I was going to go into pastoral ministry, so he would teach me to do some things, but if it was going to take too much time for him to explain, he would send me to his house or to his parents' house or his in-law's house, because they all lived like on the same street, and he would have me just go do property work there. So I did, did a lot of tree trimming, did a lot of raking leaves, a lot of painting, and like just like odd stuff around the house. Essentially, all things I had learned to do in my own house from my parents. And even though it's, it's the same tasks, doing it for my boss was vastly different than doing it for, for my parents. Vastly different. Motivation was different, right? I served my dad because, hey, that, that was my house too, right? Like, I wanted it to be good because I also lived there. I had this motivation of like, I'm a, I'm a joint owner here. No, my name is not on the, the lease and I have 
absolutely nothing to contribute towards his mortgage. But like, I'm a son, and if this is my dad's house, I want to help take good care of it. This, this could be my house at some point someday, or I, I want my parents to have a good place, right? So I feel some sort of like ownership with him. I did not feel that way about my boss's house or about his parents' house or his in-law's house. Now, I wanted to do a good job because Steve is paying my salary, but I don't have like an ownership motivation. I have a duty. I have an obligation. I'm getting paid. I have a job to do. I have to get this done, right? Motivation, completely different. Relationship, right? I wanted to work alongside projects with my dad in part because it would go faster. Or if my brother was there, I'd want to work with him. You want to work with people because it goes faster. Steve was a fantastic boss, but I did not want to work alongside of him because it was his house or it was his parents' house or his in-laws' house. And at the end of the day, right, like he wants to make sure his people, his family, is well taken care of. He's going to have no problem telling me to go back and do it again. And I learned, and I don't, I don't know if Steve listens to the sermon, so Steve, if you're hearing this, please know you were a wonderful boss. But Steve was a perfectionist. I can still remember one of the times I washed his wife's car. And he, like, I took, I took the, uh, I forget what they're called, like the blue paper towels, and was like hand drying it to get the streaks out. And he still somehow found them and made me go back. Like I had spent two hours washing his car and then I had to go back and spend another hour doing He was a perfectionist. So it was, it was like anxious working with Steve because I'm wondering what he's going to find out that's not up to his standard. I never, ever felt that way with my father. Now, Dad would let me know if I had done something wrong, but you know he would treat it as teaching opportunities as my dad. Steve, it would kind of annoy him because I'm taking time away from what he could be doing elsewhere because he was my boss. Again, this is not saying that Steve was a bad boss or that you know, the workplace shouldn't be like that, but it's different. It's different being an employee, being a servant, than to be a son. I would even say that the care was different. Right? Not that I didn't care how the work was done, but the way that I treated the tools, this, this is what, that just, what I kept coming back to. Steve had a chainsaw. It was the world's worst chainsaw because it had an oil leak, and it was one of those like continuously lubricating machines so that even when it was turned off, it would still slowly spit out oil to keep everything nice and running. Well, it, it would spit out more than just a little bit of oil, and it would gunk up inside the machine. So if it sat for longer than a week, before I could use this chainsaw, I'd have to take the whole thing apart and clean it all out with the screwdriver, put it all back together. So it would waste like 30 minutes just getting the chainsaw to work. And then at that point, if it had leaked out too much oil, then you're like filling it back up. After an hour of getting his chainsaw ready to use, it wouldn't start. And his, one of the projects that he gave me that took me about a month to do was his, his parents sat on an acre of land and across the back there's a big creek. And a couple storms had gone through, knocked down a bunch of trees. And so the trees were in the creek, so it was making the creek flood, getting closer to his parents' house. My job was to just go basically clear-cut the creek, which you can't do if your chainsaw doesn't work. Because I can't just, you know, the trees are like to stick around. It takes me forever with, he didn't have a, a big axe. He just had a little hatchet. So I'm like, I need this chainsaw to work. So there would be days where I would be a little mad at the chainsaw. And 
I may have flung the chainsaw across the yard in frustration a couple of times. I may have beaten it with a screwdriver a couple of times. I may have broken a plastic guard on it once or twice from beating it too much with a screwdriver. Um, may have. I would have never done that if that was my dad's chainsaw. Now, I didn't want to do it because I knew in both cases, not my chainsaw, not my place to be able to do that. But I'm very anxious and very tense because my boss, of course, when Steve shows up, one pull and it's running. It's terrified of Steve. It doesn't respect me. So Steve has given me a tool that in his mind works for the job, and I'm not able to do the job. Very different from me being able to go to dad and saying, Dad, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but your chainsaw sucks. Can you please help me? Or can we just get a new chainsaw? It's, it's a different mentality. So I, it's way easier for me to work with my dad than it would be my boss. And the I, more I thought about this this week, guys, I realized that if we don't think of ourselves as children of God, but we see ourselves as servants of God, then sometimes the way that you and I serve God looks a lot like the way that I would serve Steve, right? Our motivation is different. We serve God out of a sense of duty or fulfilling an obligation, right? Like, oh, I have faith, so now I have to do this. But I don't really want to. Because if it was 30 degrees and raining and Steve told me to go clean the creek, I was going to go clean the creek. I did not want to go clean the creek, but out of obligation, I'm supposed to do this. And then you're just frustrated. I don't even know why he's telling me to do this today. He really couldn't have told me to do something inside. Just the motivation is way less joyful if we think, oh, I'm just a servant of God as opposed to I am a child of God. The relationship looks totally different. Right? If we think of ourselves as servants of God, and I know, I know we wouldn't necessarily admit this out loud, but if you pressed, we would end up admitting, I don't really want God to work with me. What I really want is God to give me what I need to go do what I need to do. Right? Now, it may be a ministry. It may be good. We, we ask for God to provide us things so that we can go do them, but at some extent, we don't really want God kind of working with us because oh, that feels a little overbearing. I'm being judged. I'm being evaluated. I'd rather just God give me what I need so I can go take care of it. That's the way a servant thinks about its master, not the way a son or a daughter thinks about their father in this picture. My dad would not. I mean, he, he couldn't have been happier if I had said, Dad, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Can you come help me? And I think about, you know, the, the caring piece. Just, look, at the end of the day, I got the job done, right? The project was still just as good if I had, you know, for Steve as it would have been for my own dad. But the amount of angst and frustration and tool throwing that took place with Steve was so much more, I would think, well, is it, is it fair to say that these two are equal jobs, right? Do, do I just look at the end and say, well, you know, job is done. I don't really care how I got there. Or do I go, yeah, but, but if somebody had watched me, they would have thought I was a total nut working for Steve, whereas they would have seen a totally different person working for my dad. We may be able to get the job done, but at what expense, right? How, how many times did I overlook asking someone for help or working with Steve? Like, I, I didn't even ask him for help. Steve maybe would have been more like my dad if I had asked him. 
But how often are we overlooking things because I'm just frustrated at this, this chainsaw, this tool, this person is keeping me from getting my job done, as opposed to, hey, if, if I'm a child doing a project with the father, sometimes halfway through the project, you, you just take a break and you go to Home Depot because you don't have something. And it's, it's not a frustration, it's a learning experience. It's, it's different. Church, Jesus understood that it would be different. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, Jesus is better than the angels because he's the son, not the servant. He's really just echoing what Jesus has already told us back in Matthew 18. This is a parable that Jesus told in the context of forgiveness. But if I read it to you, well, I'm going to read it to you. You're going to hear Jesus is essentially saying the same thing that we just read. This is Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought up to him who owed 10,000 talents. There's a footnote in my scripture that just points out a talent was about 20 years of wages for a laborer. So 10,000 times 20, 200,000, 200,000 years worth of, yeah, 200,000 years worth of wages that he owes. The exact number is hyperbole. He owes an indefinitely large, impossibly large amount of money. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. This is what happens when a servant can't fit the master's orders. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But then when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, so now somebody under him, who owed him a hundred denarii. The footnote in my scripture says a denarii is about a day's wage. So you've got 200,000 years worth of, of payments erased. Then this guy goes out a hundred days, three months. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same language as the first servant did to his master. But this servant in the middle here, he refused. And he went ahead and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So then his master, the big, the big guy, summoned him the middle guy, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive his brother from your heart. It, it's a... It's a wonderful picture of if we feel like we're servants to God, then that's how we treat other people we feel like we're in positions over. And it's amazing because if we put ourselves in that position of the middle servant, even though we can have countless, limitless, abundant grace shown to us on the largest possible scale, 
on something infinitesimally smaller, no grace. Because we're living with the servant mindset. You hear the anxiety, the frustration. This guy, he just left his master's presence going, man, how did I get that debt erased? And the second he sees someone who's in a tiny way not able to do it, he goes and he chokes him and throws him in prison. If we're living with this servant mentality, we get to the place where Jesus is summoning us saying, you wicked servant, wicked implying this is the direct opposite of God's image. And it's not wicked because he choked the servant or because he threw the servant in jail. It's wicked because he did not have mercy on your servant as I had mercy on you. Because the heart was wrong, it did not matter what action the servant took. His mind was totally wrong from the beginning. Church, understanding that we are children of God and not just servants of God dramatically changes how we interact with people, changes how we value people, changes just our frustrations, what we're anxious of. It's night and day. And it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because if you go back to my work analogy, at the end of the day, the project can look very similar. Right? I was able to do the work. I still got the same work done for Dad as I did for Steve, but I was a totally different person the entire time. And I've shared with some of you guys, my burden as a pastor is not just getting the job done, however the job is done, but I care about how are you in that process. I don't want to see us frustrated, anxious, bitter, stabbing tools with screwdrivers because we just can't get the job done when God's saying, that is not how I see you. That is not who you are to me. It matters how we live for God because we are joint heirs with Christ. Remember the encouragement from the Apostle John when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So let's consider the following questions this morning as we close, right? Where might we be living as a servant for God rather than as a child of God? First, where are you serving God out of duty or obligation instead of love? And there may be seasons of your life where you, you're undertaking a role that you're not as comfortable with, right? I'm not talking about that. We can do uncomfortable things because we really love God. We can do uncomfortable things well because we really love God. It's not a question of comfort. But where am I trying to serve God out of a duty or an obligation instead of love. I think practically, I mean, for me, it took me years to get to the point where my rhythm of like time in the word and prayer actually felt like an act of love toward God instead of a duty or obligation. But once it clicked that God is not just trying to make me a servant, saying, hey, I'm your master. Read my word. Pray some things back to me. And I actually started to realize I'm a child. And like even to this day, even though I don't live near my parents, like I, I still want to talk to my dad. I still, I still want to like have a relationship with him and my mom. Like you're able to do that a little bit better because we're no longer servants. So where are we serving God out of duty or obligation instead of love? Second question, where are you, one of my favorite phrases, taking care of things for God? I think the, the notion of God calling us to do something as we're seeing in Hebrews is 
is a little bit different. God's not really asking us to do things for him. He's asking us to join him in what he is already doing. If you've ever done the Experiencing God Bible study, uh, that's like the whole premise there. God calls us to join him in what he's already doing. Be freed. God does not give you a work and say, okay, take care of this for me. That's not how God interacts with us. Then lastly, last question, who are you neglecting in your service? Right? Because when God calls us to serve him, other relationships may, may look different. We don't serve God out of an expense to someone else, right? I don't pastor here as an expense to my family. Like, I, I don't just cut them out so I can get to go be a pastor. I get to do both of these things together. Neither does God call us to just go minister to one group of people at the expense of all others. If we don't overlook we, we talked about that like two, three weeks ago, too, in the, the leadership series. So as we build on this foundation of Exodus, right, who are God's people in light of who he is? When Jesus comes on the scene, church, this is, everything changes in Hebrews. So what we're seeing this morning, you in Christ are a child of God. You are a child of God. Let's pray. Father, when thou art angry towards me for my wrongs, I try to pacify thee by abstaining from future sin. But teach me that I cannot satisfy thy law. That this effort is a resting in my righteousness. Yet only Christ's righteousness, ready made, already finished, is fit for that purpose. You don't chastise me for my sin that I should try to reform, but only that I may be more humbled more afflicted, more separated from sin by being reconciled and made righteous in Christ by faith. A sense of my sufficiency and ability in him is one means of my being immovable, that I can never be so by resting on my own faith, but by trusting in thee as my only support by faith. If I cast away my faith, I cast away thee, for by faith I apprehend thee. And as thou art very precious, so is my faith very precious to me. If I fall short of the purity thou requires, because in thinking I'm holy, I don't seek holiness, or believing I'm, I'm competent, I do no more, humble me for not being as holy as I should be, or as holy as I might be through Christ. For thou art all, and to possess thee is to possess all. But to make the creature something is to make it stand between thee and me, so that I do not walk humbly and holy. Lord, forgive me. For this, in your holy name we pray.